trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the broadcast. Oh, I am going to make it so worth your while today. In fact, I'm going to issue a warning here. I don't want you to overdose on the pure clarity and wisdom. Not that I'm going to be dispensing, but actually I have a remarkable guest I want to introduce you to. I want you to meet Nate Hockman. He is an associate contributor with Young Voices, an ISI summer fellow at the Dispatch and a former editorial intern at National Review. And uh, Nate, you've been published in a lot of other places as well. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Brian. It's my pleasure. So I'm going to ask you, set aside your modesty for a moment. Uh, I'm sure I have left some gaps here or some things that I haven't told about you. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what makes you tick. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that I was an intern at National Review, and I'm uh, at the Dispatch this summer. Those are two conservative magazines that I work at. I'm a rising senior at Colorado College, so I'm I'm relatively young in the sort of conservative thinker and writer space. But I became a conservative early on in college. I was raised by two, you know, secular progressives, and I started getting really interested in politics when I started studying philosophy in college. And uh, the rest is sort of uh, it, it took me from there. So, you know, I interned at National Review, which is a major conservative magazine. I was an intern at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a sort of libertarian-leaning conservative think tank. Um, and I just the last three years, I've been really throwing myself into the world of, of conservative thought and conservative debate. So I've written for, you know, Washington Examiner, Washington Times, National Review, Quillette, The American Conservative, a variety of different magazines and publications. And uh, um, that that has sort of been the, the story of my college career. You know, most, it's funny, most students coming from conservative backgrounds, the cliche is they go to they go to college and they lose their religion and they become progressives. And I was raised by two secular progressives from uh, Portland, Oregon, went to college and became a conservative. So my parents are sort of scratching their head, wondering what happened. But uh, that's that's how I became a conservative. So I can't help but feel that somehow balance has been restored to the force or something. I mean, I guess it happens. Let's one win for the good guys. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, a recent article that you had published in uh, its uh, intercollegiate I'm sorry, I'm looking. Go ahead. Intercollegiate Studies Institute, ISI. ISI. Um, This is behind the rise of postmodern conservatism. And and Nate, you you tackle something here that I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to. And that is, uh, first of all, you start with a question. Should our loyalty to the U.S. be based on our beliefs about the country or the simple fact we live in it? But more importantly, you tackle the subject of how can these, especially as we talk about the two major parties, these widely disparate points of view. Is there some common ground, particularly a moral common ground where there could be some unity? Because right now things are not looking hopeful to a lot of us. That's right. Yeah. So what I wrote about was this idea that the American right, broadly speaking, the Republican Party, the sort of conservative commentators of the day, have it's undergone this transformation in the last few years, which I describe as distinctly postmodern. Now that's you know a, a fancy way of saying sort of. Th- 
the age that we live in, which is characterized by a loss of belief in universal moral principles, a loss of a belief in objective truth, a loss of a belief in sort of traditional Judeo-Christian values. We've, we, we, are, we are losing that. And the left has lost that for a while. The left has sort of defined itself in opposition to some of these things. But conservatives have always seen themselves as the defender of things like universal Christian principles or Jewish principles, uh, you know, the idea, the universal ideas of the American founding, the ideas that all men are created equal and they are endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights, right? That's a universal statement. It's true of all people at all times in history. That's what Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln said when they were describing it. So that has always been the foundation of the American conservative tradition. And it's taken on different forms at different times, but it's a belief in the universal principles that form the foundation of our politics. And what I worry about now is oh, we're seeing a decay in that. We're seeing with the rise of, of, of President Trump, but it's not just President Trump, um, this sort of lack of concern for universal principles and a turn to this sort of older tribalistic politics where it's not about what's right and wrong. It's about identity and it's about my side winning and your side losing. Uh, it's about power. And uh, that has, has become this sort of this feature of our politics on both the left and the right. And it's uh, it's worrying to me. Yeah. Well, as you know, this being an election year, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's looking at the upcoming election and going as crazy as things are right now. I can only see it getting a little bit crazier because of that divide. Uh, talk to me about where this shift took place and, and why. Is, is the shift based in politics? Is it based in, you know, the, the voters having some kind of uh, a different focus in their lives? Is there something it can be attributed to? Yeah, it's a complicated, it's a good question. It's a really important question, and I don't think there's one answer to it. One thing that you can't not talk about when you're talking about the loss of universalism is a decline in religion writ large, but especially Christianity in the United States. You know, Tim Carney, who's a, who's a, um, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, wrote a book called Alienated America a few years ago where he analyzed how Donald Trump became the Republican nominee against all odds. And he went to all of the places throughout America that voted for Trump early on in the primaries. And what he found was the Repu you know, most Republicans ended up voting for Trump when he became the nominee. But there's a big break between the places in America that are heavily Republican that voted for someone like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and the places that voted for Donald Trump. And what he found was even though all Republicans more or less signed on to Trump when he was the nominee and it was a binary choice between him and Hillary Clinton, the people who were really, you know, his base, the people who were really supporting him from the very start were disproportionately in neighborhoods and areas where churches had closed down, where the, 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 pla the, the places that uh, people come together to worship um, weren't as big of a part of the community, where there was this decaying sort of uh, moral fabric. And Carney made a very convincing case that that's why you get someone like Trump who doesn't you know, isn't exactly um, a beacon of moral virtue, a Christian virtue, is because you have a decline in religiosity in the voter base. Um, and now this also happened a while ago on, in the left wing, right? So it's, 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 it is not new to our politics, but it is new 
to conservatism in America. And I think the decline in religion has been – it's not the only thing that's caused it, but it's quite clearly one of the big causes of this development on the right. How fascinating. I mean, look, I've been I've been very independent for a while, and, and I'll just confess, I don't think I have I, – I typically, when I participate in politics, I'm a registered Republican. I mean, I act as a delegate, you know, in, in my home, um, my neighborhood, my precinct. Uh, but that's only because I'm trying to exercise what little influence I have wisely. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep limited government going and that sort of thing. The problem is, uh, as as I see these uh, the, the Republican, uh, you know, the Republicans going more to the left or at least being more pragmatic. It's very, very troubling to me to to see that. There's not that big of a difference between them and the Democrats. And so I haven't voted for a Republican candidate for quite some time. I've I've had uh, I've had a very difficult time giving my allegiance to the Republican Party. Um, and that doesn't mean I could vote Democrat either. I guess I've been really independent. So it's it's interesting to hear you describe how, you know, some of that breakdown may translate into uh, how people vote um what, what is there a similar explanation? I mean, for, as far as the political left, what was it that shifted there that maybe drove more people into a more you know secular direction? Yeah, it's it's interesting, partially because it's you know what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Are people left wing because they're less religious, or are they less religious because they're left wing? And I think it's 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 both, and it bears recognizing that there are some very devout, serious, committed believers on the left. It's not the right doesn't have a monopoly over religion. Um, and there are even some people on the left who are, you know, have traditional views about things like abortion, right? 33% of Democratic voters identify as pro-life still. Now, the party at the top line, the national level, has gone way off the deep end on the left on abortion on demand up until up until the point of birth in many cases. But it's worth noting that 33% of their voter base still identifies as pro-life. So it, there's a discrepancy between what we see on the national level and the actual American electorate. But um, it's, I think it's a, it's a bigger question where you have a left that for decades has been characterized by secularism, by sort of a, you know, rationalistic university, sort of the expert class, the, this, this coalition of upwardly mobile uh, coastal folks who are generally live in and grow up in less religious communities. Okay, hold that thought. My guest is Nate Hockman. We're going to continue our conversation just the other side of these messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Nate Hockman. He is an associate associate contributor with Young Voices and a rising senior at Colorado College studying political science. And and I, I paid him this compliment off the air. I'm going to pay you this compliment on the air. Uh, Nate, you, uh, you are a person who your language in your writing comes through as someone who has experienced a classical liberal arts education. And I'm happy to see you speaking the language of the classics. Yeah, Brian, thanks. I mean, we talk about this off air too, but you describe your own liberal arts education as uh, turning your whole world up, upside down. And what I, what I said is uh, that's exactly what 
a liberal arts education is supposed to do. So I'm really privileged to have had a more classical liberal arts education where there's an emphasis on really challenging the foundational assumptions and beliefs of the students at the school. And what I worry about now, of course, is that increasingly our college campuses see challenging students as as something to be avoided. But, uh, you know, you and I both were lucky enough to go places where we really did have to reckon with our most closely held beliefs and and the things that we hold to be true. And that um, is exactly what a liberal arts education is supposed to do. So we're lucky that way, I think. Yeah. And I I would encourage people, you know, don't think, well, so here are these guys sitting there in their ivory towers talking about their liberal arts educations. I, I would want people to understand this used to be the norm. You read the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, and you will see those were written for farmers. They were written for the common man, not just the aristocracy, but the common man had that uh, broad liberal arts education in the sense that they always were learning, always studying, continuing to uh, to enlarge their field of knowledge. And, you know, I guess the only way you can do that really is to be a lifelong learner. And the framers understood that the only way a small L, small D liberal democracy like ours, a republic in which men and women are capable of governing themselves and of enjoying freedom and making choices for themselves. The only way that that can prosper and we as humans can flourish in a system like ours is to have well-educated citizenry, to have people who thought for themselves, who weren't susceptible to mob mentalities, who weren't, uh, who, who questioned what they were told and, and looked for truth themselves and knew how to look for truth effectively. That's something that all of the founding fathers were really unanimous on. So it's, it's not just, as you said, an ivory tower issue. It's something that's really crucial to small r Republican self-governance. It's something that we need as citizens of a free society like ours. That was a beautiful description of it, by the way. And that's that's the key. We don't have to have all the answers right on the tip of our tongues, but but we need to know how to think in such a way that we can ask the right questions to get to the right answers. So when it comes to morality, and this is one of the things that you address in your article about this rise of postmodern conver- uh, cons- conservatism, there is a question of morality, and, and in this case, both of the parties, the Democrats and Republicans or the conservatives and the liberals, there's a morality that drives what they do, but it seems that uh, the, the moral debate is not what it once was. And so I'd, I'd like to ask you to, to give us your best take on, is it possible for these two widely different sides to find a place where morally they can come together? Or are they are they going to be polar opposites because power in in many cases starts to outweigh that morality? Yeah, it's a really really important question, and I think the the first step towards trying to create this is why limited government is so crucially important. This is what the men who wrote our constitution and our founding documents understood is the beauty of a society in which pluralism and individual liberty can flourish, in which the power of the state is limited, is that we can live according to how we choose and pursue our own visions of the good, have our own moral codes, and we don't have to argue about it in terms of the government. We don't have to fight and struggle constantly between who gets to impose their moral premises on the other. The problem is, in the last you know, century or so as our government with the beginning of the progressive movement and as our government has grown exponentially, increasingly we have been expected to solve these fundamental moral questions at 
the level of the federal government. And you have people in the progressive caucus, especially the progressive movement, saying that they aren't that they aren't, you know, that they're not really talking about moral questions that when they're, you know, when they're legalizing abortion or, you know, uh, legalizing same-sex marriage, right? Those aren't moral questions. It's just, it's just live and let live. But the, the, at the same time, they try to force, you know, religious nonprofits to pay for contraceptives or uh, force religious bakers to serve uh, um, same-sex couples and endorse, uh, uh, you know, things that they find immoral. So they're speaking the language of moral pluralism while also forcing their moral premises on other people. And if we're going to find a way to live together and really turn, dial the, the heat in our politics down a couple notches, we have to remember the lessons that our framers told us about limited government and about why we, the necessity of liberty and pluralism and respecting other other people's ability to live their lives as they choose um, so that we can live together and, and not have to constantly live in fear of the other side taking power. I was mentioning to you off the air, one of the big concerns that I have with uh, with the upcoming election is that increasingly elections seem to be more about uh, not we're putting the person in office because they stand for these principles or they they advance this cause or that cause. But it feels more and more like it's becoming we got to do this so we can punish them, you know, the others uh, when when the voting is done. Right. That's exactly right, Brian. And that's directly the cause of the fact that our government has become more and more powerful, right? When you up the stakes of being in power in government, it increasingly, every election becomes this increasingly panicked, sort of high octane, you know, if we lose, everything is at stake. The end of America is right around the corner, right? Both sides are saying that. And the reason they're saying that is because whoever controls the government now has way more power than they used to. If we could reduce the government's power back down to its constitutional limits and decide how we live in our local communities again, the elections wouldn't be such a massive issue and there wouldn't be such emotional partisan division. But because we insist on on make, on making every moral question something that has to be decided by the federal government, you know, our politics has been turned up to 11 and we constantly are are uh, are panicked about the other side winning. And when we win, it's a you know, it's a rush just to punish the other side and and try to force them to do as much as possible and stick it in their eye because there's so much anger at one another, unfortunately. No, I think that is that is one of the most accurate assessments I have heard. And, and I keep a pretty close eye on this stuff. So I have to ask you, Nate. Are you feeling optimism? Are you feeling a little skeptical? This is one of those glass half full, glass half empty things. A lot has happened this year. It seems to be intensifying. What do you see as we move ahead, especially towards this uh, November's election? You know, Brian, I'm a conservative, and uh, conservatism is nothing if not uh, a certain measured pessimism about human nature and political possibility. So I believe in America. I believe the vast majority of the American people are decent hardworking, honest people who don't want to fight with the other side and just want to live their lives as they choose and enjoy freedom and, you know, uh, support their family and these basic American values that the vast majority of Americans subscribe to, left or right, Democratic or Republican. It's this tiny minority of people at the very top, you know, in in the media and in, in Congress who are the really partisan, you know, really ugly, divisive people, but they don't speak for the vast majority of Americans. With that being said, you know, 
it doesn't look good right now. You know, as I said, I'm, uh, you know, uh, con- conservatism is based on a certain pessimism about human nature. And uh, it, I think we're seeing exactly why that pessimism is true right now, because, you know, human nature doesn't look all that good from from where I'm sitting at the moment. Well, if we can depoliticize, I think that would help to solve a lot of the problems. Uh, tell people where they can find your writings and they can can follow more of your work. Yeah, I, you can read me at National Review, The Dispatch, uh, the, the American Conservative, and uh, follow me at Twitter at NJ Hawkman. That's N J H O C H M A N. Okay, we'll be uh, sharing the link with you for the podcast. Nate Hawkman, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks, Brian. It was really my pleasure. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 is the number. You know, I get the impression sometimes, and I don't, I don't want to sound like, you know, the old man yells at clouds kind of guy, but... It seems like everything is getting a makeover, and I'm not talking about in a good way. It's not like, hey, let's see if we can spiff this up a little bit, you know, put some fresh tires and a fresh coat of paint on it. It's more like, no, we need to deconstruct and then rebuild everything from the ground up. And somehow everything that remains or everything that is rebuilt ends up looking like a statue of Lenin. Not John Lennon, Vladimir Lenin. I know that's kind of a cynical way to look at things, but... I, I'm just trying to get at the, the direction things seem to be going. Everything has to be remade to make it more politically correct, more palatable, more, you know, acceptable to whatever the whim of the moment is. And when I saw this article from Dan Sanchez, this was published on the Foundation for Economic Education, How to Make Superman Relevant. I thought, you've got to be kidding. We have to remake the Man of Steel because apparently uh, he's not connecting with audiences because he's too perfect. Does that surprise you? You know, it's like every ideal that we once had is is just I it's, it's sexist, it's patriarchal, it's it's something. But I'm not sure I'm not sure that uh that this is something that was really needed in the first place. Anybody remember the song from back in 1986 from Genesis, Land of Confusion? Then had the lyrics, "Oh, Superman, where are you now when everything's gone wrong somehow?" Oh, I still have the tune in my head. Well, that lyric from the 1986 Genesis song, Land of Confusion, suits our current predicament. Dan Sanchez says many things seem to be going wrong all at once. The COVID pandemic, lockdowns, economic devastation, political polarization, civil unrest, violence in the streets, anxiety levels rise as these crises collide and then combine into the perfect storm of social distress. If only Superman could save the day. But of course, as a fictional character, Superman can't physically save us, but he can provide us desperately needed inspiration, as he has done many times before. Indeed, Superman was created in times much like these. And I guess most of us uh, may, may have forgotten. You may be old enough that you can remember the Man of Steel made his sensational debut in 1938. Nearly a decade into the Great Depression, He was a source of inspiration for millions of kids as they and their parents struggled through the last of those grueling years. 
During World War II, Superman's popularity soared even higher. He was immensely popular among young troops, lifting the spirits of thousands as they faced the deadly perils of war. Fast forward to 1978, when Superman's blockbuster movie inspired yet another generation of Americans as they emerged from the doldrums of the past decade. And Dan Sanchez says, you know, we could surely use that kind of inspiration today. Sadly, Superman won't be saving our spirits at the cinema anytime soon. Movie theaters remain shuttered due to COVID-19, but even before the pandemic... Danny DePlacido reported at Forbes that, that with no script or director attached, insiders believe that a new Superman film is unlikely to appear before 2023. Now, with superhero movies having made billions of dollars at the box office, you would think that Warner's DC films would be eager to capitalize on their monopoly over the most iconic superhero of them all. But the studio has been disappointed with Superman's audience reception in recent years. The last big screen appearance was in Justice League, which was considered a failure. And his depictions in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman were met with decidedly mixed reactions. DC Films still doesn't know what to do with Superman. The studio is unsure how to make the character relevant to modern audiences, says Forbes' tweet of De Placido's article. And Dan Sanchez asks the question, why is Superman failing to connect? De Placido posited that Superman's godlike powers and righteous attitude are too alienating for modern audiences. What does that mean? He's too good? This has long been the prevailing theory that Superman is a problematic character because he is too powerful and he is too good. This charge has been made on multiple grounds. One common claim is that it leads to boring stories. Good stories, it said, need challenges and perils for the hero to overcome. A hero who is unstoppable and invulnerable to harm is therefore boring. And morally righteous heroes are also boring because they have no internal demons to overcome and thus no room for growth. But De Placido didn't say boring. Dan Sanchez points out she said alienating. Why would power and goodness serve to alienate? Well, maybe it's because mere mortal readers have trouble identifying with such a perfect character. But he says, I think it's more than just that. After all, audiences in 1938 and 40 years later in 1978 were just as mortal as audiences today. Why would modern audiences be alienated by power and goodness when past audiences were not? And Dan Sanchez's answer is maybe it's the way we've been taught to regard being super. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. appreciate you taking my call. And I think the reason things are coming to a head is because the schools have uh, brainwashed our kids into socialism. And, and they, they haven't taught that these statues are, are people who were not perfect but they did something extraordinary. They made a difference. They they um they made things better, and and they haven't been taught why they made things better. And I think another reason why things are coming to a head is that there's a lot of forces that's been trying to destroy America for a long time. I mean, we could go into Russia, you know, and China, communism. I I guess. Nixon thought that if they introduce capitalism to China, that they would join us. And actually, the opposite happened. And, and so 
uh, to make this quick, um, I, I have to say that um, with Watergate, they're trying to say, did Nixon know about the break-in in the Democratic, you know, uh, office, you know? But now, with Rice's notes, we know that Obama, the day of the inauguration, he was plotting and had already used the government to spy on President Trump, a, a citizen of America, and the dossier was, you know, a fraud. So what's happened is these people have been caught. They did do illegal things. They tried to find out if Trump did something illegal, and they couldn't find it, so they tried to invent something. But they've done illegal things, and, and it's coming to a head because um, the youth really don't understand what's going on. And, and, and if Obama, I mean, if, if Biden gets elected, he'll sweep everything under the carpet and continue to let America be plundered. And Interesting. if Trump yeah. gets elected, I think the law will keep going slowly and going after. And, and you, you know, the, the, what the Democratic Party, what the extreme Democratic Party, the socialists have been doing, they took over the Democratic Party, and they have been doing this hiding for a long time. But somehow President Trump gave them enough rope, and they're out in the open. Hey, it, can, it, I, can it, I float a conspiracy theory past you? Sure. Okay. Don't hate me because I probably should be wearing a tinfoil hat before I even say this. But there has been a huge amount of uh, focus and and media hype about oh, COVID is exploding. You know the the cases are up, deaths are up. Every you know there there's really a, a strong push right now to put everybody into a deep state of fear over COVID nineteen. And I have to admit, the thought that crossed my mind today when I when I was uh, noticing how how strident the tone is. Is uh, what's her name? Uh, I, I, Maxwell uh, Jeffrey uh, Epstein's uh, former cohort. Yes, I think Miss Maxwell may be talking, <laughs> and that's why our attention is being focused on how terrible you know COVID is and how how horrible it must be. We must lock everything down because that would be the perfect distraction, you know, for the very powerful and the people that that many of them may be protecting. And I, I realize what I'm saying sounds very fantastical and conspiratorial, but. I have to wonder well, what, what we're being urged not to observe or, or look at in favor of, look, panic. Well, it, exactly. That's what's been happening for a long time, you know, in, in the cups. You know, you move the cups around, and which, which cup has a, the um, item underneath the cup? You, you know, I, um, that's been happening for a long time, and I think there's been a lot of selfish, greedy, competing interests that has nothing to do with capitalism, true capitalism. These have been self-serving, competing interests that's trying to, you know, rip America off and destroy America and not care what the consequences are. And these people are being revealed. And I think it's coming to a head. And um, Okay, let's stop. Let's stop there. I got to move on here. But Ray... Thank you so much for your call. When we come back, I want to finish up with this article by Dan Sanchez about how Superman is so good that he's not even even not worthy or he's not worthy of emulation. Maybe envy. We should dumb him down a little bit, you know, morally. So he's a little more like us. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. All right, let's finish up this article from Dan Sanchez, How to Make Superman Relevant. This is such a fascinating commentary on our view of being super. And Dan Sanchez says, you know, the way we've been taught to regard being super, it's pretty questionable these days. He says, according to a common worldview, many forms of being super are often considered not admirable, but suspect, not worthy of emulation, but resentment, not a source of inspiration, but of envy. Listen to this example. Entrepreneurs who achieve super success in business are regarded as villains, even by those who benefit greatly from their products and services. People with high-functioning virtues like industry and frugality who dare to encourage others to work and save are denounced for poverty-shaming. Even fit people who promote healthy habits in others are bashed for fat-shaming. And Dan Sanchez says, with such an attitude, it's no surprise that some might find Superman alienating. Superman, as traditionally conceived, is a platonic ideal of human excellence, of health, vitality, self-discipline, and heroism. He says, if you look at excellence in others like something to envy or resent or attack, then a symbolic figure like Superman will be a standing insult that only makes you feel worse about yourself. But if you look at human excellence in others as something to admire or celebrate or emulate or aspire to, then you will more likely see Superman as inspiring and uplifting. You know you can never achieve his superhuman perfection, but you embrace the fantasy as a symbolic ideal a guiding star. That being said, Dan Sanchez says, I think it's the filmmakers, not the audiences, who are to blame for not appreciating what Superman has to offer. Superman's copyright holding custodians have long bought into the theory that, well, classic Superman is too powerful and good, so they've tried to remedy that by giving modern Superman feet of clay. They have him, they've powered him down, they've made him vulnerable to getting knocked around, even beaten to death. But more perniciously, They have weakened him morally. Over and over again, they've depicted Superman as a morally compromised government stooge or a power-mad would-be dictator. Zack Snyder's Superman is a mopey, tormented figure whose inner conflict and hesitancy lead to catastrophic failure and mass casualties. So the more pertinent question is, why is that version of Superman failing to inspire audiences? And Dan Sanchez says, my guess is that they're not intimidated by his strength, but bored and even disgusted by his weakness. A testament to that interpretation is the enormous and enthusiastic popularity of Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Captain America, as depicted in the MCU, is every bit the Boy Scout that Superman used to be. Throughout every film, he is firm and resolute in his ideals, even when they are tested by his closest friends and allies and outlawed by the government he once served. He does evolve, learn, and is even disillusioned at times, but he never truly falters in his core inner convictions. Unlike Snyder's Hamlet version of Superman, you would never see this Captain America bellowing in self-recrimination. Did audiences find this morally righteous, almost pure vision or version of Captain America alienating? No. In movie after movie, they found him thrilling. Every time his stalwart, even stubborn devotion to moral principles were validated, audiences cheered. 
And when in Avengers Endgame, he proved worthy enough to wield the enchanted hammer, and I don't know how to say Thor's hammer's name, Molsner, anyway. Thor spoke for many of us when he exclaimed, I knew it. Just to listen to how, and, and he has an audio clip, or actually a video clip here. Listen to how one audience viscerally reacted to that moment in a clip that went viral back in April. I'm not going to play it for you, but I want you to go to the article, which I will have posted in the show notes at LovingLiberty.net. Dan Sanchez says Captain America's popularity is a hopeful sign that in spite of envy and cynicism toward virtue being drilled into us by media, academia, politicians, and activists, a core part of the human spirit will always be drawn to and be able to learn from stories that inspire us to become better versions of ourselves. And this inner core is as impervious to deconstruction as Superman is to bullets. So DC, he says, if you want to make Superman relevant to the modern audience and make a lot of money in the process, reconnect him to what has always made him relevant to the human heart that beats in all audiences. Make him virtuous, resolute, and strong inside and out. These are times that call for heroism. To rise to that challenge, we need stories of heroes who act like heroes to inspire us. Again, Dan Sanchez, How to Make Superman Relevant. See, it's times like this that I actually regret that I don't watch more movies. I'm kind of a spoil sport that way. My friend C-Train, if you're listening, you were calling me out on this last night. When's the last time you watched a movie? <laughs> I don't get to watch very many. And sometimes I feel like I'm missing out. But then again, when I see some of the, uh, again, the, the culturally dumbed down, morally dumbed down versions of what are supposed to be heroes, then I don't feel so bad. I think it was Charlie Reese, maybe 15 years ago. This great newspaper columnist was mildly complaining. I guess he was more observing that uh, most of the hot movies, the, the popular movies, the big blockbuster smash hits consisted of psychopaths killing other psychopaths. I don't think that has improved much in uh, the last few years. And for those who say, well, but it's just unrealistic. You know, you put up this lofty ideal and nobody can actually hit those ideals, whether they're a fictional character or not. Why do we have these impossible ideals? That just makes people, you know, disgusted with themselves. I think they're missing the point, though. I understand there is no perfect human being, you know, that, that's on the earth today. None of us is absolutely infallible. But when we strive for that ideal, when we at least reach for it, we're better for having tried. Even if we fall short, which most of us will, we're still better for having stretched and tried. All right, let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. I didn't get to say the positive. You know, and as for punishing, you know, whoever's elected to punish the other party, you know, crime needs to be revealed. But, you know, as far as Superman, we all need to be heroes like superman all all of um you know you know you know th this what's happening now can be an education of reality you know f for the youth i know that the tougher things get the the more the opportunity is there for people to to do heroic things and and it's it's there because when everything is going swimmingly, well, that's, you know, nobody really needs to step up and, and be heroic. And, Ray, I appreciate you calling back and clarifying. I, here's, here's, my, here's my challenge for you and for me. 
the hero that America needs right now is the person you see looking back at you from the mirror every morning. That's who needs to step up and be a hero. And I'm not talking about, you know, you have to become Captain America. You have to, you know, rival Superman in terms of your heroic feats. Small things done heroically are nonetheless heroic and they make a difference. And if more people would approach whatever they're doing that day with the idea that they're, they're sometimes the heroic thing is just simply doing the right thing. I have a friend who recently has been going through and sleeping everybody on his uh, his Facebook feed rather than responding angrily to things that that uh, strike a nerve with him. Now, you may think I'm grasping here, but uh, I think that could be a heroic thing as well. Knowing when to make that bold stand, knowing when to speak up, knowing when not to speak up, knowing when to offer a word of encouragement, when to step in and defend someone when you see injustice being done against them. It could be a homeless person. It could be, I'm going to go here. It could be the person who's not wearing a mask being berated. It could be the person who's wearing a mask being berated by someone who doesn't think it's a good idea. And the heroic thing would be to step forward and say, you don't have to be that way to the person who's doing the berating. Calm the situation down. Show by example there's a better way that we could and should be treating each other. I'm not suggesting this is easy, by the way. In fact, uh, here's, here's probably your best indication that you are uh, actually involved in something that may be borderline heroic, if not outright heroic. It's hard. And whether it's a big feat or a small feat, if it is hard, if it is difficult to do, if it requires something more than what we talked about a couple days ago, the, the path of least resistance, chances are pretty good. That's something heroic. And I know the temptation is we all like to fall back on, well, but I'm just one person. I'm not really all that good. And, you know, I should leave it to somebody more qualified. But I would ask you to consider that if you are in the right place in time, that you notice something that needs to be done and you recognize that it needs to be done. Guess what? You're the right person. Now you just got to find the courage to step up and be that hero. Seize your destiny. Oh, I know. (laughs) We all have our own forms of kryptonite out there, too. So avoid that as best you can. But the world needs your heroism in whatever form it takes, and it needs it right now. This is The Brian Hyde Show.